Hello, and welcome to Misinformation, a trivia podcast for ladies and gents who love cool trivia and sticking it to annoying teams at Pub Quiz. We are your hosts. I'm Lauren. And I am Julia. Hey, Jewel. Hi, Lauren. <laughs> it's winter time now. Yeah. Because that's, that's what happens here. Oh my gosh. I'm not ready. It started snowing no. the other day and I was like, no, my body isn't nope. ready. It was my phone. I dropped my phone on the ground. It's okay. <sighs> so. And now we're getting into it. We're getting into it. So like, I guess in the summer, I don't like really check the weather as much. No, because it's like, okay, it'll I'm be like, warm tomorrow. Oh, it, yeah, it'll yeah. be warm. Oh, okay. Like I know what I'm wearing. I work indoors. It's fine. Yeah. But like winter, like there's a total difference in America here between like 33 degrees and mm. like 28 degrees. Absolutely. Like it doesn't sound like a lot, but like I am comfortable outside at 33. Yeah. But I could wear a big sweater from my car to the office and it's not and a it's big deal. Fine. But once you dip below like 30 degrees, it's uh, Fahrenheit in America. That's when the depression really sets in. Yeah. It sinks in deep. It's in yeah. your bones. You can never get warm. That's how Rochester was for my first couple of years here. Oh, yeah. There no, was, I nightmare. love telling people, there was one February that they said in the entire month of February, there were only three hours where the temperature was above <laughs> freezing. And it was like 2 to 5 a.m. one day. <laughs> and, and, by, and by above freezing, they meant like 33 degrees. And it wasn't even a time where you could enjoy it. You go outside and like really bask in the warmth. Uh, I know. Those, those first couple of winters when, that you moved here, that was brutal. Bad. And everyone was like, it's not normally like this, I promise. <laughs> and you were like, that's a lie. I don't I hate believe you, all. you. Yeah. It was like when you have to brush the snow off your car, like every time you go outside, yep. you just get like numb to it. And you're yeah. just like, what's the point? <laughs> I'm just going to have to do this again in an Why hour. Why do I shower? Why do I sleep? What's the point? Why do I eat any food? It's just, <laughs> I'm just going to have to do it again in a couple hours. Oh. Anyway. Anyway, <laughs> let's bring this back up. Oh, I'm um, sorry. So temperature. Degrees. Yeah. What are these things? Tell me about it. All right, let's do it. Well, I'm on the way the time pole. I want to be keeping you warm. I got the right temperature for shelter you from the storm. Temperature is a physical quantity expressing hot and cold. About, done. It is measured with a thermometer calibrated in one or more temperature scales. So thermometer, it's a device that measures temperature or a temperature gradient. And it has two important elements. First, a temperature sensor in which some change occurs with a change in temperature. So for example, like the bulb of a mercury glass thermometer or a digital sensor in an infrared thermometer. Sure. And number two, some means of converting this change into a numerical value. So that's the visible scale that's marked on a mercury in glass thermometer or a digital readout on an infrared model. Some of the principles of the thermometer were known to Greek philosophers 2,000 years ago. Oh, my God. Um, but the modern thermometer gradually evolved from the thermoscope with the addition of a scale in the early 17th century and standardization through the 17th and 18th centuries. The most commonly used scales are the Celsius scale, formerly mm -hmm. called centigrade. It's denoted as a degree symbol and then the big letter C. Yep. Uh, the Fahrenheit scale, denoted degree symbol, big letter F. Mm -hmm. And the Kelvin scale, denoted with the capital K. Okay. No degree sign for Kelvin. Oh, just that's the letter K. Okay. Um, the Kelvin, um, as a as a degree, is spelled with a lowercase K, and it's the unit of temperature in the International System of Units, the SI units, um, in which temperature is one of the seven fundamental base quantities. And the Kelvin scale is widely used in science and technology. So when you're talking about the Kelvin scale, the K is a capital. But when you're like denoting it, it in like you know. You're denoting what the temperature was in Kelvin. It's just that number and then lowercase k. Okay. So who are the dead white guys? The Who are the namesakes of these temperature Great. scales? Lay them on me. Starting oldest to youngest. Here we go. <laughs> Fahrenheit. Daniel Gabriel Fahrenheit was a Dutch German Polish physicist, inventor, and scientific instrument maker. He was born in Gdansk. Um, he was a German speaking Hanseatic city, but he lived most of his life in the Dutch Republic. And he was one of the most notable figures in the golden age of Dutch science and technology. Um, so Fahrenheit was born in 1686. And the Fahrenheits were a German merchant family who had lived in several Hanseatic cities. Daniel was the eldest of the five Fahrenheit children, two sons and three daughters who survived childhood. Daniel Gabriel began training as a merchant in Amsterdam after his parents died in 1701 on the very same day from eating poisonous mushrooms. Are you serious? Mm-hmm. What? Yeah. Was it like a, was it like a 
dual suicide or was it no, just like like they were like eating dinner and it was no. poison mushrooms yeah what the what yep what a terrible what way a to terrible go terrible way to go that is why one should never eat a mushroom that is not from a grocery store exactly if you have a friend who's like oh i got these mushrooms you don't trust him slap them out of his hand and say how dare you try to poison me like that so you should check out lauren's episode 37 these plants will kill you thank to learn you more about things like poisonous mushrooms and other plants you shouldn't eat yeah thank you julia it's a very good episode if i may say so myself <laughs> oh terrible way to go yeah awful <laughs> so daniel gabriel's his interest in natural science led him to begin studies and experimentation in that field in 1717 he traveled to berlin leipzig dresden copenhagen and also to back to his hometown where his brother still lived in gdansk um, during that time fahrenheit met or was in contact with ole romer christian wolf and gottfried leibniz who were three important scientists of their time in 1717 he fahrenheit settled in the hague as a glass blower making barometers altimeters and thermometers and the next year um, he lectured in chemistry in amsterdam he visited england in 1724 and that same year he was elected a fellow of the royal society According to a text written by Fahrenheit in 1724, he determined his temperature scale by referring to three fixed points of temperature. The lowest temperature was achieved by preparing a frigorific mixture of Ooh. ice, water, and ammonium chloride. So frigorific is like at the freezing point. Oh, okay. Um, so it's ice, water, ammonium chloride, which is a salt, and he waited for it to reach equilibrium. The thermometer then was placed into the mixture and the liquid in the thermometer allowed to descend to its lowest point. The thermometer's reading there was taken as zero degrees. Oh, okay. The second reference point was selected as the reading of the thermometer when it was placed in still water when ice was just forming on the surface. And this was assigned as 32 degrees Fahrenheit. Oh. The third calibration point taken as 96 degrees Fahrenheit was selected as the thermometer reading when the instrument was placed under the armpit or in the mouth. Oh my God. Fahrenheit came up with the idea that mercury boils around 300 degrees on this temperature scale. Work by others showed that water boils at about 180 degrees above its freezing point. And the Fahrenheit scale was later redefined to make the freezing to boiling interval exactly 180 degrees, a convenient value as 180 is a highly composite number, meaning it's easy, evenly divisible into many fractions. Hmm. It is because of the scale's redefinition later that normal body temperature today is taken as 98.6 degrees, whereas before it was 96 degrees on Fahrenheit's original scale. The Fahrenheit scale was the primary temperature standard for climactic, industrial, and medical purposes in English-speaking countries until the 1970s, nowadays replaced by the Celsius scale long used in the rest of the world. Uh, Fahrenheit died in The Hague and was buried there at the Kusterklerk, or the Cloister Church. And you can find the Gdansk Fahrenheit Monument in Gdansk, Poland, which displays an antique thermometer to remember the man. Oh, that's lovely. Next up, Celsius. Okay. Anders Celsius, born in 1701, was a Swedish astronomer, physicist, and mathematician. He was professor of astronomy at Uppsala University from 1730 to 1744, and he founded the Uppsala Astronomical Observatory in 1741, and in 1742 proposed the Celsius temperature scale, which bears his name. So he was born in Sweden in 1701, the son of an astronomy professor named Nils Celsius, and oh. the grandson of the mathematician Magnus Celsius. Oh, that's such a good name. Such a good name um young anders also chose a career in science and he was a talented mathematician from an early age he studied at Uppsala university where his father was a teacher and in 1730 he also became a professor of astronomy there in 1730 celsius published the nova methodis distantium solis atera determinandi the new method for determining the distance from the earth to the sun his research also involved the study of auroral phenomena and he was the first to suggest a connection between the aurora borealis and changes in the magnetic field of the earth in 1736 he participated in an expedition whose aim was to measure the length of a degree along a meridian close to the pole and compare the result with a similar expedition to then peru today present-day ecuador near the equator and the expedition confirmed isaac newton's belief that the shape of the earth is an ellipsoid flattened at the poles mm. so Guys, the earth is not a perfect spear. No, it is not. In 1738, he published the De Observationibus Profigura Telluris Determinanda, Observations on Determining the Shape of the Earth. <laughs> Celsius's participation in the Meridian Degree Expedition won him much respect in Sweden with the government and his peers and played a key role in generating interest from the Swedish authorities in donating the resources required to construct a new modern observatory in Uppsala. He was successful in the request and Celsius founded the Uppsala astronomical observatory in 1741 so the observatory was equipped with instruments purchased during his long voyage abroad comprising the most modern instrumental technology of this period 
In astronomy, Celsius began a series of observations using colored glass plates to record the magnitude, a measure of brightness, of certain stars. This was the first attempt to measure the intensity of starlight with a tool other than the human eye. And he made observations of eclipses and various astronomical objects and published catalogs of carefully determined magnitudes for some 300 stars using his own photometric system. Nice. Yeah, he's doing a lot. Oh my gosh, all over the place. Celsius was the first to perform and publish careful experiments aiming at the definition of an international temperature scale on scientific grounds. In his Swedish paper, Observations of Two Persistent Degrees on a Thermometer. Sorry, I didn't... I didn't write down the title in Swedish. It's all right. Um, he reports on experiments <laughs> to check that the freezing point is independent of latitude and atmospheric pressure. And he determined the dependence of the boiling of water with atmospheric pressure. He also gave a rule for the determination of the boiling point if the barometric pressure deviates from a certain standard pressure. So he now he's now he's into pressure and, okay. and altitude and latitude. Oh my God, so many things. So he proposed the Celsius temperature scale in a paper to the Royal Society of Sciences in Uppsala. um, And his thermometer was calibrated with a value of 100 degrees for the freezing point of water and zero degrees for the boiling point. Mm. But in 1745, a year after Celsius's death, the scale was reversed by Carl Linnaeus to facilitate more practical measurement. Yeah. Uh, You might know Carl Linnaeus is the guy that like came up with all of those like genus species names for all that, you know. Right, 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 right. Celsius originally called called his scale centigrade derived from the Latin for hundred steps. For years, it was simply referred to as the Swedish thermometer. Um, but while he was still alive in 1725, he became secretary of the Royal Society of Sciences in Uppsala and served at this post for the remainder of his life. He supported the formation of the Royal Swedish Academy of Sciences in Stockholm and was elected a member at the first meeting of that academy. Celsius was also a very active supporter for introducing the Gregorian calendar in Sweden. Uh, this means he wanted to drop 11 days and abandon the Julian calendar, but that did not happen during his lifetime. It took until 1753. Celsius passed away at age 42 in 1744 from oh, tuberculosis. Oh, man. Bam. Tuberculosis. He did a lot, though. Oh, in like yeah. 20 years. Holy cow. Yeah. He studied the aurora borealis. Mm-hmm. He studied figuring out longitude latitude. Sure. He studied pressure. Yeah. He did the, that the earth is not uh, a round. circle. Yeah. Um, <laughs> came mean, up with this, with this you know, scale for, for measuring things, which is still in use today. It's amazing he had any time to eat and sleep. Yeah. You know, maybe I spend too much time doing both. <laughs> and maybe I could be as successful as Sir Celsius himself. In a recent episode of The Good Place, Michael <laughs> says to them, you humans, you're always sleeping and chewing. <laughs> <laughs> oh my God, that's so true. I'm like, Those are two of my favorite things, Michael. <laughs> Those are two of my favorite things. At the beginning of the day, when I wake up in the morning, I'm like, oh my God, I can't wait to go back to bed. Uh-huh. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> my bed is especially comfortable now, too. Flannel sheets? Like, no, no. I've got um, a mattress topper. Ugh. And it's scented, <laughs> which I didn't know this when I got it on the... With lavender. With lavender. Because it was in my car for four days when I picked it up off oh, of your yeah. porch. <laughs> oh, okay. So I got to my car and I'm like, ooh. I'm like, why does it smell like lavender in here? Uh, when I first unrolled it, it was very... Pungent. Yeah, and I was like, I "This is going to give me a headache." Yeah. But, but it's it kind of mellowed. It put me out so fast. Oh, it's so good! Congratulations! Thank you. I'm very happy with my mattress topper. <laughs> anyway, I'm sorry. <laughs> temperature. You're talking about temperature. Our third guy. Yeah. For the Kelvin scale, mm-hmm. his name is William Thompson. What? He was the first Baron Kelvin. Oh, okay, okay. He was a Scots-Irish mathematical physicist and engineer born in Belfast in 1824. So, William Thompson. His father, James Thompson, was a teacher of mathematics and engineering at the Royal Belfast Academical Institution, and who he was also the son of a farmer. James Thompson married Margaret Gardner in 1817, and of their children, four boys and two girls survived infancy. William and his elder brother, James, were tutored at home by their father, while the younger boys were tutored by their elder sisters. Um, James was intended to benefit from the major share of his father's encouragement, affection, and financial support, and was prepared for a career in engineering. In 1832, their father was appointed professor of mathematics at Glasgow, and the family moved there in October 1833. The Thompson children were introduced to a broader cosmopolitan experience than their father's rural upbringing, spending mid-1839 in London, and then the boys were tutored in French in Paris. Uh, They spent part of 1840 in Germany and the Netherlands, where the study of language was given high priority. 
In the academic year 1839-1840, William Thomson won the class prize in astronomy for his essay on the figure of the earth, which demonstrated his skill for mathematical analysis and creativity. Throughout his life, he would work on problems raised in the essay as a coping strategy during times of personal stress. Oh my God. I mean, like I like to open a bottle of wine or eat some cake, but hey, you do you, Willie. Yeah, exactly. Um, Thomson wrote his first published scientific paper under the pseudonym PQR. Okay. Um, he was defending a French mathematician who wrote about something and he was like, I feel strongly about this too, but I don't want to put my name on it. And so he's mm. published under PQR. Okay. In 1841, he published another more substantial pseudonymous paper on the uniform motion of heat in homogeneous solid bodies and its connections with the mathematical theory of electricity. Uh, oh so long and boring. <laughs> um, in the paper, he made brilliant connections between the mathematical theories of heat conduction and electrostatics, which inspired contemporary scientist James Clerk Maxwell, who was the guy that was the namesake for a whole bunch of equations and theorems around mathematical physics and electromagnetism. Mm. At the University of Glasgow, Thompson did important work in the mathematical analysis of electricity and formulation of the first and second laws of thermodynamics. And he also helped to unify the emerging discipline of physics in its modern form. Nice. William Thompson also had a career as an electric telegraph engineer and inventor, oh which God. propelled him into the public eye and ensured his wealth, fame, and honor. For his work on the Transatlantic Telegraph Project, he was knighted in 1866 by Queen Victoria, becoming Sir William Thompson. Okay. Telegraphs. Okay. The transatlantic telegraph cable is an undersea cable running under the Atlantic Ocean used for telegraph communications. Okay. The original project began in 1854 and was completed in 1858. The cable functioned for only three weeks. What? Yeah. They oh, they spent all this time. Oh, my they gosh. They spent four years doing this project and only worked for three weeks. It was the first such project to yield practical results, though. So the first okay. official telegram to pass between two continents was a letter of congratulations from Queen Victoria of the United Kingdom to then President of the United States, James Buchanan, on August 16th, 1858. Wow. Okay. Oh my God. Signal quality declined rapidly, slowing transmission to an almost unusable speed. And the cable was destroyed the following month when an English electrical experimenter named Wildman Whitehouse no. applied excessive voltage to it when trying to achieve faster operation. And the cable's rapid failure undermined public and investor confidence and delayed efforts to restore connection. So wait, so so hold on. Hold okay. on, hold on, hold so on. So they spent four years laying this cable sure. between the United Kingdom and America. Queen Victoria got her telegraph sent over to President James Buchanan. Everyone's like, and new then, communication. Great. And then signal quality like stopped working because we had this like, you know, thousand mile yeah. and um, also not cable. The technology. And then they were like, and then this electrical experimenter, Wildman Whitehouse, was like, yeah, guys, <laughs> I, I got this. Why? And he tried to like turn up the voltage or oh. something. Like... <laughs> Got this, guys. Don't Why worry. wasn't there anyone? Was there anyone in charge? Because I can't imagine anyone would want to hire a man whose name is literally Wild Man. <laughs> Wild Man. To, to try and improve like the situation. Uh, you're listening to the Wild Hour with <laughs> Wild Man White House. That's absolutely true. Yeah, <sighs> no wonder. Did yeah. they really think that putting all of their trust into a man named Wild Man <laughs> and it burned it out? Yep. I was going to say maybe it was a shark or maybe a whale, but no, it was wild man. So that was 54 to 58. A second attempt was undertaken in 1865 with much improved material and oh, following good. some setbacks. A connection was completed and put Yay. into service on July 28, 1866. This cable proved more durable. It was laid across the floor of the Atlantic from Telegraph Field in Foyle Homerum Bay on Valencia Island in Western Ireland yep. and ran to eastern Newfoundland, Canada, to a station called Heart's Content. Aww. Isn't that lovely? That's sweet. Um, the original cable was first brought ashore in Heart's Content on July 27th, 1866, and the cable station remained in use until it was closed in 1965. Wow. So the transatlantic like a cable was still around in 1965. That's like amazing. My mother was alive when they were still sending transatlantic telegraphs on this thing. That's cool. Um, the first messages were sent across the cable using Morse code with three people working at the Hearts Content Station to send and receive these messages. The cable station was originally established in Hearts Content by the Anglo-American Telegraph Company, but was later taken over by the Western Union Telegraph Company in 1912. Do you know who founded the Western Union Telegraph Company, Lauren? Uh, John Western Hiram Union? Sibley. Hiram Sibley. Oh, of Rochester, the Sibleys. New York. Of the Rochester Sibleys. Yes. yes. That's another reason why Rochester had a ton of money at the end of the 19th century was you, had the, you got your Kodaks, mm -hmm. you got your Bausches and your Loms. Yes. 
and you got the Sibleys. Yeah. Well, interestingly enough, we had a Western Union office. Mm -hmm. The RMSC had a Western Union office up in the third floor diorama section. Right. And it was an old Western Union office from the 19th century. And someone had, they closed it and they had broken it down and they put it up there. And there was a wax model of a man who was like the Mm -hmm. telegraph dude. And we tore it down years ago, Uh but the telegraph man stayed in our art vault. So every time you would walk into the art vault, the light switch was on the inside. So you'd turn on the light and then he would be boom right there staring at you. Every time I went into art vault, I knew he was there. I was like, it's going to scare me. I know Uh it's going to happen. But every time it seemed like he was closer or his eyes were looking directly (laughs) boring into my brain or something. But yeah, we had an old telegraph office. It was cool. We have the same thing in one of our collection storage areas, except it's Santa Claus. Oh, yes. Um, but he's like not fully clothed yet, Santa Claus. He's Ooh. like jolly Santa Claus with his suspenders over his red long underwear. Oh, I see. And he's peering with his glasses at his outstretched hand, which I guess in theory is supposed to be like, you're supposed to have a list there that okay. he's looking at. But it looks like he's squinting at his phone. <laughs> his cell like, phone? Yeah. <laughs> You guys should put it out with like a little cell phone. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's not good. Mannequins and yeah. He was made of wax. Oh, so bad. Anyway. (sighs) Western Union. That's cool. Western Union. Yep. Um, So Sir William Thompson had extensive maritime interest and was most noted for his work on the Mariner's Compass, which had been previously limited in reliability. During the 1880s, he worked to perfect the adjustable compass in order to correct errors arising from magnetic deviation owing to the increasing use of iron in naval architecture. Thompson's design was a great improvement on the older instruments. His was steadier and less hampered by friction and deviation due to a ship's own magnetism was corrected by movable masses of iron at the binnacle. A binnacle is a waist-high case or stand on deck of a ship in which navigational instruments are placed for easy reference. Huh. That's a good word the to know. Binnacle. The binnacle. Um, Thompson also built a special purpose mechanical analog computer to predict the ebb and flow of sea tides Get and the out. irregular variations in their heights. That's amazing. Yeah. Computer. By the way, everyone, computers are way older than we think they yeah, are. Yeah, absolutely. Ada Lovelace, daughter of, you know, mm-hmm. Lord Byron. Yes. She worked on one of the first computers, Charles Babbage's. We, we got to do an episode on Ada Lovelace. We should. Yeah, let's I don't do know it. We haven't. Yeah. So, absolute temperatures are stated in units of Kelvin in his honor. Okay. While the existence of a lower limit of temperature, absolute zero, was known prior to his work, Lord Kelvin is widely known for determining its correct value as approximately. Negative 273.15 degrees Celsius or negative 459.67 degrees Fahrenheit. And he first proposed this in 1848. He was the first British scientist to be elevated to the House of Lords. This title refers to the River Kelvin, which flows close by his laboratory at the University of Glasgow. Oh, my God. His home was the imposing red sandstone mansion Netherhall in Largs. And despite offers of elevated posts from several world-renowned universities, Kelvin refused to leave Glasgow. Glasgow, remaining press professor of natural philosophy for over 50 years until his eventual retirement from the post. Mm-hmm. The Hunterian Museum at the University of Glasgow has a permanent exhibition on the work of Lord Kelvin, including many of his original papers, instruments, and other artifacts. Always active in industrial research and development, he was recruited around 1899 by George Eastman <gasps> to serve as vice chairman of the board of the British company Kodak Limited, affiliated with Eastman Kodak. What? Rochester Connections. Rochester bam, Connections. Bam, bam, boom, boom, bam, boom, 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 bam. boom, boom. Center of the universe, Rochester, New York. TM. I said it first. <laughs> <laughs> um, in November 1907, Thompson caught a chill and his condition deteriorated until he died Not at a his chill. Scottish residence. On December 17th, 1907, at the request of Westminster Abbey, undertakers prepared an oak coffin lined with lead, and Oof. his coffin was then taken by Hearst to Westminster Abbey, where it rested overnight in St. Faith's Chapel. The following day, the Abbey was crowded for the funeral, including representatives from universities in various countries. Lord Kelvin's grave is in the nave, close to the graves of Isaac Newton, John Herschel, and Charles Darwin. Yeah. He's also memorialized on the Thompson family grave in the Glasgow Necropolis. The family grave has a second modern memorial to William, alongside erected by the Royal Philosophical, Philosophical, Royal Philosophical, Royal Philosophical Society of Glasgow. Okay. Temperature scales. They differ in two ways. The point chosen as zero degrees and the magnitudes of incremental units or degrees on the scale. 
Okay. So the Celsius scale, degrees C, is used for common temperature measurements in most of the world. Yeah. It is an empirical scale that was developed by historical progress leading to its zero point being zero degrees C, being defined as the freezing point of water, with additional sure. degrees defined so that 100 degrees C was the boiling point of water, both at sea level atmospheric pressure. Because of the 100 degree interval, it was also called the centigrade scale. Sure. The United States, though... No, we don't use that one. No. We use the Fahrenheit scale, yes. at which water freezes at 32 degrees Fahrenheit and boils at 212 degrees Fahrenheit at sea level atmospheric pressure. Mm-hmm. Many scientific measurements use the Kelvin temperature scale, unit symbol K, named in honor of the Scots-Irish physicist who first defined it. So it's a thermodynamic or absolute temperature scale. It's 0.0K is defined to coincide with the coldest physically possible temperature called absolute zero. And its degrees are defined through thermodynamics. Theoretically, the coldest a system can be is when its temperature is absolute zero, at which point the thermal motion in matter would be zero. However, an actual physical system or object can never attain a a temperature of absolute zero. Absolute zero, zero degrees on the Kelvin scale is negative 273.15 degrees Celsius and negative 459.67 degrees Fahrenheit. So the conversions between them, degrees Celsius equals parentheses, degrees Fahrenheit minus 32 and parentheses times five ninth. What? Say that one more time for me. Degrees Celsius equals degrees Fahrenheit minus 32 times five ninths. Five ninths? Five over nine. Okay. So this is certainly not like a head conversion thing that no, you can do. You, no. If you're like really good at math, you can do it on pencil and paper. Um, so I have a thing in my head that I use for it. Okay. Go ahead. No. Okay. Don't be ashamed. And Safe I don't space. know where it originally came from. Okay. So there was some song early 2000s maybe okay that was like i know my calculus yes it's you, you plus, plus me, me equals, equals us, us. Yeah. okay yeah what is it oh you there's a dance to it there's a dance to it and okay. everything so to get your celsius degrees f minus 32 times five nights <laughs> That's a very good. That song is from an MTV spoof of boy bands. Yes. And I forgot what the boy <laughs> band is called. Um, called two. Two. Grabs. <laughs> to get two. her. To get her. To get her. Together. 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 <laughs> very good. Is it called Together. Yes, together. Yes, and the the one who was like the young one, like it was like I'm the hot one, I'm the the sexy one, I'm the gay one, I'm the young one. The young one, the kid died. The guy died of cancer. Oh, jeez. And that's why it didn't like continue because he died of like Hodgkin's disease or something. Um, yeah, it's together, and the T is a plus sign. Oh, is the two a number two? Yes. Okay, it's number two. Great. Two get. G-E plus sign her. Yeah, plus sign her, yes. Okay. Yes. To get your Celsius degrees F minus 32 times five nine. That's very good. There you go. So uh, conversely, degrees Fahrenheit equals degrees Celsius times nine fifths plus 32. Okay, so it's the inverse, obviously. Yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, Kelvin to Celsius, when you're converting that, add 273. Oh, that's easy. Yeah. <laughs> no song needed. No song needed. Yeah. Same way. Celsius to Kelvin is subtract 273. Yeah. Done, done and dusted. Okay. Then remember we're doing Kelvin to Fahrenheit. That's a little more complicated. So Kelvin to Fahrenheit, subtract 273.15 from Kelvin, multiply by 1.8, then add 32 from Fahrenheit back to Kelvin. Subtract 32, multiply by 5, divide by 9, add 273.15, turn yourself in four circles, throw some salt <laughs> over your shoulders. Yep. That's what it's all Blind about. Blind the devil. Um, yeah, no wonder the rest of the world uses Celsius. It's, it's, it's easier. It's so much easier. I know, but I can never wrap my head around it. Like, I used to listen to Canadian radio yeah. as, a, as a teen, mm-hmm. and when you're not paying attention... And they're like, well, you know, traffic's really hard on the QEW today. You know, we've got some 15-minute, and it's uh, two degrees out today. And I was like, holy shit, it's so cold when it's not two degrees. Um, It's actually quite balmy. Uh, Yeah, I just never got a hold of it, Mm -hmm. considering I live so close to America's hat. 
So, I mean, we live so close to America's hat. But yeah, it seems to be a lot easier. (laughs) Yes. And then finally, what is the temperature where Celsius and Fahrenheit are equal? Oh, this is good. good. It's good to know. Just one point where Fahrenheit and Celsius scales where the temperatures in degrees are equal. This is negative 40. So at negative 40 degrees Celsius and negative 40 degrees Fahrenheit, Fahrenheit and Celsius are equal. So at so hopefully knock wood. It's not a degree that we're gonna see. Hopefully not here. No, in Western New York. Maybe some wind chill in Antarctica or something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly. Wasn't there like there was some at some point like um, northern Canada, like the Yukon, was actually colder than Mars. There was yeah, like last winter or something. There was like a point where there was a temperature measured in the Yukon that was colder than the temperature on Mars. Yeah, it's like so weird. Between the brain-eating proteins and the and the, <laughs> the freezing Mars cold temperatures, I don't even know. What are we going to do? I mean, who, I'm just going to keep drinking wine. Keep drinking wine and eating chocolate. That's Plain that's how it goes. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, that's what I wanted you to know. That's great. Thanks so much, Julie. You're I learned welcome. so much about degrees. Oh. And the people behind them. And the people the behind dead white men behind them. God bless them all. All right. Quiz is called Fahrenheit 451. This is a quiz on banned and challenged books. I'll tell you the year the book was first published, a summary of it, and some of its listed offenses, and you tell me the title. You're right. I can do that. All right. Question one. 1928. The story concerns a young married woman whose upper-class husband has been paralyzed from the waist down due to a Great War injury. Her emotional and sexual frustration leads her into an affair with the gamekeeper. The book is notorious for its story of the physical and emotional relationship between a working-class man and an upper-class woman, its explicit descriptions of sex, and its then- use of unprintable words it was banned for obscenity in ireland poland australia japan canada and india and also banned by u.s customs number two 1899 this book centers on a woman in new orleans and her struggle between her increasingly unorthodox views on femininity and motherhood with the prevailing social attitudes of the turn of the century american south it is seen as a landmark work of early feminism Banned from an Illinois public library in 1902, though widely reported as banned for decades for much of the 20th century. Seems like the critics opened their eyes. Number three, 1960. The novel depicts three months in the life of a 26-year-old former high school basketball player named Harry, who's trapped in a loveless marriage and a boring sales job, and his attempts to escape the constraints of his life. Banned in Ireland is obscene and indecent, particularly due to promiscuity and its explicit sex acts presumably acting like bunnies. Number four, 1940. This novel tells the story of Robert Jordan, who graphically experiences the brutality of the Spanish Civil War, declared non-mailable by the U.S. Post Office. The postman couldn't ring twice, I guess. Number five, 1988. Inspired in part by the life of Muhammad, this novel uses magical realism to tell the story of two Indian expatriates in England. Major controversy ensued as Muslims accused it of blasphemy and mocking their faith. Been in Pakistan, Saudi Arabia, Egypt, Somalia, Bangladesh, Malaysia, Qatar, Indonesia, South Africa, and India. Number six, 1969. This sci-fi anti-war novel, whose alternate title is The Children's Crusade, A Duty Dance with Death, is told in a non-linear order through flashbacks from an unreliable narrator who makes progress when he survives the Allies' firebombing of Dresden as a prisoner of war, but also has time travel flashbacks and flash-forwards. Banned from a variety of school districts in the U.S. for being depraved, immoral, vulgar, and anti-Christian. Number seven, 1932. Largely set in a futuristic world state of genetically modified citizens and an intelligence-based social hierarchy, this dystopian novel incorporates major scientific developments to make a utopian society, which is challenged only by a single courageous outsider. Banned in Ireland and India, removed from classrooms in a Missouri school district for making promiscuous sex look like fun. Challenged in several districts for themes of overt sexuality, drug use, and suicide. Number eight, 1937. 
This novella tells of two displaced migrant ranch workers, not exterminators, who moved from place to place in California in search of new job opportunities during the Great Depression in the U.S. Banned in Ireland, Bannon challenged in hundreds of school districts in the U.S. as containing profanity, vulgar language, sexual overtones, violence, and allegedly promoting euthanasia. Number 9. 1987, this revered Pulitzer Prize-winning novel, whose dedication reads 60 million and more, is the story of a former enslaved woman named Seth, her youngest daughter, Denver, and the spirit that haunts their home, challenged in several school districts for violence, sexual material, language, and racism. And finally, number 10, 1960, this Southern Gothic novel, no ghosts though, focuses on a young girl and her older brother. They live with their widowed lawyer father who defends an African-American man accused of sexual assault, challenged for profanity, violence, and language in various U.S. school districts. I'll give you about a minute to think and we'll be back with your answers. I recognize and if I'm right I did not know they were banned that's crazy yeah and after this I'll tell you um some other famous banned and challenged books and kind of what the what the differentiation is there oh I'm excited okay all right number one published in 1928 the story concerns a young married woman whose upper class husband has been paralyzed from the waist down to due to a great war injury her emotional and sexual frustration leads into an affair with the gamekeeper This book is notorious for its story of the physical and emotional relationship between a working class man and an upper class woman, its explicit descriptions of sex, and its use of then unprintable words. Banned for obscenity in a whole bunch of places and banned by U.S. Customs. Was it Lady Chatterley's Lover? It is Lady Chatterley's Lover by D.H. Lawrence. Mm -hmm. An unabridged edition was not published openly in the United Kingdom until 1960 when it was the subject of a watershed obscenity trial against the publisher Penguin Books. Penguin won the case and they quickly sold 3 million copies. Of course. Number two, 1899. This book centers on a woman in New Orleans and her struggle between her increasingly unorthodox views of femininity and motherhood with the prevailing social attitudes of the turn of the century American South. It is seen as a landmark work of early feminism, banned from an Illinois public library in 1902, though widely reported as banned for decades. For much of the 20th century, seems like the critics opened their eyes. Um, it wasn't their eyes were watching God, is it? No. no. What was it? The Awakening. The Awakening, damn it. Oh, Kate Chopin, that's such a good one Mm -hmm. too. Damn it. Yeah, that's seen as one of like the, one of the earliest works of feminism. I didn't realize that it was set in New Orleans. That's what Mm -hmm. threw me off. Oh, okay. The Awakening, it's so good. Yeah. Number three, 1960. The novel depicts three months in the life of a 26-year-old former high school basketball player named Harry, who is trapped in a loveless marriage and a boring sales job, and his attempts to escape the constraints of his life. It was banned in Ireland as obscene and indecent, particularly due to promiscuity and explicit sex acts, presumably acting like bunnies. Is it Rabbit Rabbit? Rabbit Run. Rabbit Run. Rabbit Run by John Updike. It spawned several sequels, including Rabbit Redux, Rabbit is Rich, and Rabbit at Rest, Mm -hmm. as well as a related 2001 novella, Rabbit Remembered. In these novels, Updike takes a comical and retrospective look at the life of Harry Rabbit against the background of the major events of the latter half of the 20th century. I only recently realized it is not about a bunch of rabbits. (laughs) I guess I was confusing it with Watership Down. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Mm -hmm. (laughs) I get it. Um, Number four, 1940. This novel tells the story of Robert Jordan, who graphically experiences the brutality of the Spanish Civil War, declared non-mailable by the U.S. Post Office. The postman couldn't ring twice, I guess. I do not know. Spanish Civil War, 1940. Something ringing. 
I don't know. What is it? For Whom the Bell Tolls. Oh, okay. I didn't read it. Okay. Yeah. Ernest Hemingway. For Whom the Bell Tolls. In 1941, the Pulitzer Prize Committee for Letters unanimously recommended For Whom the Bell Tolls to be awarded the prize that year, and the board agreed. However, Nicholas Murray Butler, president of Columbia University, ex officio head of the Pulitzer Board at the time, found the novel offensive and persuaded the board to reverse its determination. So no award was given that year. Oh, man. That's all right. Hemingway was fine. Yeah, I mean, c- he was fine. He had his cigars, he had his Cuba, he, he had his fine. rum. He's fine. Yeah. Uh, 1988. Inspired in part by the life of Muhammad, this novel uses magical realism to tell the story of two Indian expatriates in England. Major controversy ensued as Muslims accuse it of blasphemy and mocking their faith. Banned in a whole mess of countries. Uh, that's the Satanic Verses. Yes, by Salman Rushdie. Mm-hmm. The title refers to the Satanic Verses, which are a group of Quranic verses referring to the three pagan Meccan goddesses, Alat, Uza, and Manat. The outrage among Muslims resulted in a fatwa calling for Rushdie's death, issued by the Ayatollah Ruhollah Khomeini, then Supreme Leader of Iran, who, in February 1989 declare this fatwa. The result was several failed assassination attempts on Rushdie, who was placed under police protection by the UK government. In 1991, in separate incidences, okay, in separate incidents, Hitoshi Iragashi, the Japanese translator of the book, was stabbed to death, <gasps> and its Italian translator, Ettore Capriolo, was seriously wounded. In 1993, William Nygaard, its Norwegian publisher, was shot and seriously injured. Are I didn't realize that like, all of these people actually were oh injured and killed God. as a result of this. That's out of control. Yeah. I mean, I knew there was a fatwa on him, but I yeah. did not know that people actually died. Yes. Holy shit. That's crazy. <sighs> crazy question six 1969 this sci-fi anti-war novel whose alternate title is the children's crusade a duty dance with death is told in a non-linear order through flashbacks from an unreliable narrator who makes progress when he survives the allies firebombing of dresden as a prisoner of war but also has time travel flashbacks and flash forwards banned from a variety of school districts in the u.s for being depraved immoral vulgar and anti-christian uh, that's Slaughterhouse Five. Slaughterhouse Five yep. by Kurt Vonnegut. It's about the World War II experiences and journeys through time of Billy Pilgrim, from his time as an American soldier and chaplain's assistant to post-war and early years. It is generally recognized as Vonnegut's most influential and popular work. Oh, uh, Billy Pilgrim apparently gets alien abducted by the Tralfamadorians who see in four dimensions is like part of this book. I thought it was just about like World War II. No, no, don't worry. We have some flashbacks and flash forwards where he's kidnapped by the Tralfamadorians. I I did read it. I remember Uh I read it in college, but I do not remember him being abducted. alien abduction. All right. Yeah, well... Vonnegut, bless him. Bombings at Dresden, you can generally think that it's Kurt Vonnegut. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. Great. Number seven, 1932. Largely set in a futuristic world state of genetically modified citizens and an intelligence-based social hierarchy, this dystopian novel incorporates major scientific developments to make utopian society, which is challenged only by a single courageous outsider. Being in Ireland and India, removed from classrooms in a Missouri school district for making promiscuous sex look like fun. Challenged in several districts for themes of overt sexuality, drug use, and suicide. I... I'm going to be so mad when you tell me what it is, but I cannot. It, it does not ring a bell. Tell me. Go ahead. It's Brave New World. Brave New World. By Aldous Huxley. Oh, damn the it. The title is derived from, you know what it's derived from? Oh, God. Miranda's speech from The Tempest in Shakespeare. Oh, so that's it's interesting. Act 5, scene 1 of Shakespeare's The Tempest. Oh, wonder how many goodly creatures are there here. How beauteous mankind is. Oh, brave new world that has such people in it. Oh, yes, of course. The world state that is the setting for the novel is built upon the principles of Henry Ford's assembly line, mass production, uh, predictability, and consumption of disposable consumer goods. From birth, members of every class are indoctrinated by recorded voices repeating slogans while they sleep to believe their own class is superior and that the other classes perform needed functions. Any residual unhappiness is resolved by an antidepressant and hallucinogenic drug called SOMA, S-O-M-A. So anything I just said, that's from... 
Brave, Brave New, New World. World. I got to read it again. It's been a very long time. Number eight, 1937. This novella tells of two displaced migrant ranch workers, not exterminators, who move from place to place in California in search of new job opportunities during the Great Depression in the U.S. Banned in Ireland, banned a challenge in hundreds of school districts in the U.S. as containing profanity, vulgar language, sexual overtones, violence, and allegedly promoting euthanasia. It's a Steinbeck novel, isn't mm-hmm. it? Is it of mice and men? It is of mice yes. and men. Thank God. Woo. Um, it's about George Milton, an intelligent but uneducated man, and Lenny Small, a bulky, strong man who is mel- mentally disabled. They're in Soledad on their way to another part of California, and they hope to one day attain the dream of settling down on their own piece of land. Lenny's part of the dream is merely to tend and pet rabbits on the farm as he loves touching soft animals, though he always kills them. Lenny also accidentally kills a woman, and then, spoiler alert, George kills Lenny yeah. shoots him in the head. Um, you know, the Har- Hanna-Barbera c- cartoons, like the bug spinning yeah. with the big guy who's like, I will love him and pet, pet him. him and- and- <gasps> that's based oh. on Lenny. It's based on oh. Lenny. Yeah, I know. And welcome to bits. Yeah, oh. it's based on Lenny. I know I read that somewhere after I read Of Mice and Men. You know what? I don't normally like Steinbeck because Grapes of Wrath was terrible. Oh. But um, Of Mice and Men was very good. I really enjoyed There's something about it that I really enjoyed. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, you can't read it in some parts of the country still. Number nine, 1987. This revered Pulitzer Prize winning novel whose dedication reads 60 million and more is the story of a former enslaved woman named Seth, her youngest daughter, Denver, and the spirit that haunts their home. Challenged in several school districts for violence, sexual material, language, and racism. Um, is that Beloved? It is Beloved yes. by Toni Morrison. Beloved is what they call the spirit, and um, she is Seth's deepest, darkest secret, later revealed in the book. When Seth escaped her former master, he found them and tried to reclaim her and the children. She then uh, instead attempted to kill her children in order to put her babies where they would be safe, aka with God, instead of back on a plantation. Uh, but she only succeeded in murdering her two-year-old daughter, whose tombstone then read Beloved, with no name on it. The themes in the book deal with the psychological impact of slavery, mother-daughter relationships, and pain. And in 2016, the beloved bill in Virginia was introduced in the legislature that would require Virginia public schools to notify parents of any sexually explicit content and provide an alternative assignment if requested. It was vetoed by the governor of Virginia twice and has not been enacted. Good. Um, They made a movie. It was uh, Oprah Winfrey and... Um, Danny Glover. Oh yeah, and uh, I think it was like critically panned, mm. but it like re it was like mid two thousands. It like re it brought that book back. Yeah, and in like the cultural lexicon, basically. Yeah, it's but, kind yeah. of like a ghost story. It's very dark. It's yeah, super it's, dark. It's 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 tough. It's tough to read. It's tough, but award winning. Absolutely, as it should be. And number ten. 1960, the Southern Gothic novel, No Ghosts Though, focuses on a young girl and her older brother. They live with their widowed lawyer father who defends an African-American man accused of sexual assault, challenged for profanity, violence, and language in various U.S. school districts. Uh, That's To Kill a Mockingbird. To Kill a Mockingbird by Harper Lee. Um, As of 2017, the book keeps getting banned from districts. The director of the ALA Office for Intellectual Freedom, James LaRue, said... Quote, the most current challenge to it is among the vaguest ones I've ever heard. The Biloxi, Mississippi school board just says it makes people uncomfortable. Well, yeah. LaRue contends the whole point to classics is they challenge the way we think about things. Very important. Uh, PBS just recently, and actually I I watched the finale, the reveal, um, when I was in the tub in Canada (laughs) drinking a glass of wine, watching it in the bathroom because there was a TV in my bathroom. underscore this. I want you all to know that I spent three days on my honeymoon in, in the a bath. bathtub watching TV. Yeah. Um, they did. PBS did a 100 most loved books in right. the United States and people like voted and all this stuff. Mm-hmm. And number one was um, To Kill a Mockingbird. That's very interesting. Which is great. Number two was the Outlander series, <laughs> which is like, Ooh, you know what I love? Time travel and and bodice rippers scotsman yeah also not for nothing outlander has a lot of rape scenes like it's very rapey it's not i mean i'm sure it's very romantic whatever Mm -hmm. all is fine all is good but it and those have you ever seen an outlander book physically they're so thick like get an editor am i right diana gabaldon anyway yeah all that matters is number one is to kill a mockingbird so yes america's favorite book agreed to kill a mockingbird that's great um, so, just an addendum. 
Uh, book challenges are documented requests by a person or group to remove a book from somewhere such as a library or a required student reading list. Challenges are usually met with much resistance from students and educators and are ultimately unsuccessful. Yeah. But book banning is the result of a successful book challenge. Okay. Top reasons books are challenged include offensive language, sexual content, and being unsuitable for a certain age group. Among the most feared books okay. that I haven't already mentioned. Ready? Yeah. The Bible. <laughs> The Communist Manifesto. Sure. The Adventures of Huckleberry Finn. What? Tropic of Cancer. The okay. Catcher in the Rye. The Lord of the Flies. Lolita. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Green Eggs and Ham. No. Uh, that was banned it. in China for its portrayal of early Marxism in 1965. <laughs> the Anarchist Cookbook. Sure. Scary Stories series by Alvin Schwartz. Remember those? Oh They're my God. very scary. <laughs> Is that the one with the guy with on the, the cover? With the sketch? Yes. The, yep. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yep. Heather Has Two Mommies by Leslie Newman and Laura Cornell oh, in 1989. Um, and The Absolutely True Diary of a Part-Time Indian by Sherman Alexie in 2007. Oh, right. Yeah, that was a yeah. big book. Also, The Da Vinci Code and Fifty Shades of Grey. Stop but it. let's face it, those should actually be banned from popular consumption yeah, anyway. Absolutely. Not good. <laughs> Terrible writing. I think I read three pages of... Um, Fifty Shades of Grey. Ugh. And I was like, this is just fan fiction that she snuck by an editor. This is not, it's is not that good. Did she put her what in the what in the who? <laughs> that doesn't even make any sense. <laughs> oh, All right. That was so very good. Go. Banned books is a good topic. Yeah. Yeah. That it's was very excellent. interesting. Like, I, I mean, I've read a lot of banned books. Yeah. Sure. And I mean, for all intents and purposes, I feel that no, no book should be banned. Exactly. Yeah. That's freedom of the freedom of the press, you freedom know? Freedom of the press, yeah. And like, I know in high school we read a lot, like, you know, some schools did a very good job of making sure your curricula was challenging and, sure. you know, included some of those things on there. Mm-hmm. Like I know, you know, you read the, the Huckleberry Finn is challenged mostly for the use of the N-word and, oh, yeah, and like stuff like that. But, you know, if you know ahead of time... By the way. Yeah. By the way. Not, the, not good now, but this is what it was like in, you know, sure. the 19th century when this was written. Also, don't, maybe don't use that. Don't use the N-word. Yeah. You're not allowed. Yeah. Sorry. Next. <laughs> it's just a quick conversation before you start reading it. I, uh, for the record, I did not enjoy Huckleberry Finn. Mm. I found the the pervasive use of patois. Yeah. Uh, to be distracting. Because you kind of had to read it out loud yes. if you were trying to figure out what what Twain was saying. And also there. the fact that, that Twain was like, it was Twain writing in a patois. Mm-hmm. In a, yeah. It was Crushed just like, the old man. Yeah, I was just like, okay, I'm a little uncomfortable with this. But regardless, it's a very important bur- book. Mm-hmm. Thank you, thank you. So If you have a favorite band book, please oh, tweet it out, at tell us. us. We're at MissInfoPod on Twitter. Mm-hmm. Um, you can email us, uh, MissInfoPod at gmail.com. Uh, we have a Facebook page, Misinformation, colon, a trivia podcast. And you can also find us on our website, www.missinfopod.com. And you can uh, stream us on our website if you uh, don't have, well, let's say iTunes, Google Play, or Stitcher, wherever you can find us, or um, any podcast app that you prefer using our RSS feed. Thanks so much. That's about it. That's about it for us. Thanks so much for listening, you guys. We'll catch you next time. Bye. Bye.